Friday, your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hey, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast where we explore thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. Today's episode uh, is another special one. I always got to say that. But uh, we'll be talking with Ike Miller, Dr. Ike Miller, about his work, Seeing by the Light, Illumination in Augustine's and Bart's reading of John. Uh, it's an awesome book. I really recommend it. Um, you'll see when we talk about it. But before that, just wanted to thank the Patreon supporters, the patrons. Uh, you can find a link to my Patreon account uh, in the description, wherever you're listening or watching this. If you guys have benefited from the show, please consider becoming a, a patron. Uh, like I've said before, I would love to do this full time. I'd love to get some more equipment, go in person and, and uh, track down some more of these scholars and experts well, where they're at. I think that'd be awesome. So uh, if you've benefited, please consider supporting. Uh, another way you can do that is uh, by liking and sharing YouTube videos, uh, subscribing over there, turning on the notification bell, all that good stuff. And then above and beyond, it would be huge if you go to Apple Podcasts, leave me a five-star review and a comment. And the more of you who do that, the less I have to say this in the beginning of the episode. So without further ado, uh, let's pull uh, Dr. Miller in here. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Parker, man, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to our conversation today and excited about what we're going to talk about. <laughs> Definitely, man. So uh, Illumination is huge. I really like it. I haven't seen a ton about it. And you you mentioned that in the book on how, it, it at least in modern times, it's kind of been uh, forgotten. I first started thinking about it because of C.S. Lewis's Miracles. Mm -hmm. um, he's just got kind of a, a small little section uh, in his argument from reason uh, about divine illumination. And he's saying, you know, he's, he's trying to say that reason is this supernatural thing and it, it invades nature, um, but not to destroy, but to, to give rise. And it's really an, an, a type of Augustinian illumination. So I, I got excited by that. And then I saw this book and I was like, dude, here we go. Finally, let's, <laughs> let's jump in. So uh, before we get into illumination, I wanted to find out like, how did you get, you got a PhD in theology. Yeah. How did that start? how did you get into theology? Yeah, so it's kind of all connected, really. And uh, a part of that is, you know, when I was considering whether to pursue a PhD, uh, one of the pieces of advice that I was given was, you know, don't do it because of the job that you hope to get one day or the credentials or the degree or whatever, but because there's something that you need answered. There, there's yeah. something that you're wrestling with deeply that you need answered. And really, that was a huge part of it for me. And so just kind of introducing how I got into theology, but also how I ended up on this topic of illumination was growing up, I grew up in a context, uh, a faith context where evangelism and in particular kind of personal evangelism was really important. It was, it was a big part of kind of what we were called to do as followers of Jesus. And in particular, kind of the whole idea of the objective was to lead someone to pray, pray a prayer right, to follow Jesus, to give their life to Christ. And so being a good, you know, high school follower of Jesus, you know, that's what I did. And so whether it was in on mission trips or on sports team buses on the way home from sports or whatever, yeah. uh, you know, if you're sitting with me, you're going to hear the gospel, you totally. know. And uh, so sometimes, you know, people would pray a prayer and receive Christ and other times they wouldn't. And uh, but what happened was eventually uh, I would have these experiences where someone would make this decision to follow Jesus. And then the next day it was like nothing happened. Right. And I was like, OK, if someone's had a genuine encounter with Christ, I feel like it wouldn't be like nothing happened <laughs> and really became disillusioned with that a little bit of just. Gosh, I feel like if you've had a genuine encounter with Christ, there would be some transformation that's taking place, some awareness. And the fact that someone could 
have this experience and yet there's nothing. Uh, just I, I felt like, man, there's got to be more to this. What is going on in particular with conversion? And so when I was in college, I was doing a, a Bachelor of Arts in Religion and uh, was involved with the Campus Crusade or Crew now is what it's called. Uh, and I was I, the event- I work for Crew. So, yeah. OK, awesome. Yeah, yeah. I'm yeah. with uh, Athletes in Action, a, a, a branch of Crew. But yeah. Oh, awesome. I, I catch that. Yeah. yeah. So here I am uh, involved with this organization. I'm the evangelism team leader for our campus and I'm having this crisis of what is evangelism. <laughs> it's not the guy you want leading your evangelism team. Right. <laughs> um, but towards the end of undergrad, I really, uh, some of this just broke open for me and felt like the paradigm of faith that I had grown up with just uh, didn't work uh, or it just didn't make sense in the way that it had before and really went on this journey of, um, really got involved with understanding the historical Jesus. I got really interested in a lot of the studies of the historical Jesus. And um, that was kind of what drew me into kind of the academic side of religion and faith was wanting to really engage in that because I was really interested in that, even though the kind of faith tradition I came from, uh, I didn't really identify with anymore. And so uh, real quick, could you, could you, are you, are you cool telling us the, that tradition you grew up in? So I grew up in Southern Baptist. Con- okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so I kind of went on a journey of what now, you know, we famously talk about as deconstruction, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like this was deconstruction before we talked about deconstruction. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I um, ended up going to Duke Divinity School for seminary and really <laughs> in a fascinating turn of events, I kind of went to Duke thinking, here's this academic institution that's just going to affirm all of my like enlightened academic ideas, you know, about, you know, Jesus apart from the bias of faith and, and all of this stuff. And I was sitting in a New Testament class and my professor was Kevin Rowe, New Testament professor. And uh, we were talking about the creeds and we were talking about the councils and the the church fathers and especially the Christological councils. And I kind of raised my hand, like I was going to have my professor cornered, you know, I had this question that was just going to totally gotcha kind of question. And I was like, aren't the church fathers doing the exact same things that, you know, scholars are doing now with reconstructing identities of Jesus. Isn't that what these Christological councils were? And I thought I just had him, you know, (laughs) and he said, no, you know, the difference (laughs) is uh, the church fathers weren't discounting everything that we had gained and learned in the tradition from when Christ died until them. Whereas modern scholars kind of start with, you know, where they go up to when Christ died and then they discount everything through to kind of the modern era with this kind of historical arrogance uh, almost. And man, it put me on my heels. It set me back. I was just like, gosh, I've got to rethink a lot of things. And so, um, yeah, so that's how I got into theology was just, man, having my boat rocked in different ways at different times and feeling like, man, I've got a lot more to to work on and to learn from. Uh, but illumination, to come back to that, the way that I got into illumination was really trying to understand what happens when we have that encounter with Christ mm-hmm. uh, and, and what makes it transformative and what makes it, you know, uh, lead to a life of following Christ versus, you know, someone that that doesn't. So I was just really curious to answer that personal question for myself. Yeah, dude, I, I love that um, because well, I love the topic because it can go so deep, but it also has this practical um, application implication for yourself. And I think of my own self when, when I, um, fully, you know, give, surrendering to Christ. There's all this evangelical language you can use, but um, yeah, yeah. through athletes in action in college, I felt like I was illuminated. And it's mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. I started reading books. I never yeah. finished a book before then, and then I yeah. was skipping class to read the Bible and read <laughs> apologetics and stuff. Yeah. And I, I didn't want to use that word because it sounds like a weird cult type thing. Mm-hmm. Like oh, I've been illuminated. I'm one of the, right. or, or the atheists who say like, we're the brights, you know, something yeah. like that. I, it's always light language. Um, <laughs> That's right. But I love this and I want to, I don't know, retrieve it. And so that, that brings us to the question of like, what is your project? Is it a, is it retrieval theology? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, like, do you consider yourself a continental analytic mm-hmm. theologian? Uh, how do you characterize your your work here and then maybe yourself as a theologian? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, the, the specific focus on illumination came from, as I wrestled with this question of uh, what happens when someone has an encounter with Christ? Uh, I was also working through the gospel of John and in a 
a couple of courses and realized that the Gospel of John, more than any of the other Gospels, has these long narratives of individuals encountering Christ. You've got Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the man born blind, like these long narratives. And in some of those narratives, people have this radical transformation. The woman at the well leaves and goes, proclaims the gospel. Uh, The man born blind walks away and says, I don't know what happened. All I know is I was blind and now I see. Mm -hmm. But then you've got Nicodemus, who is just totally confounded by what he's just seen and what he's just experienced. Um, But as I looked at my own experience of people uh, coming to know Christ and for some of them having this aha moment, kind of like, man, it just all makes sense. Or that all of a sudden there's this ravenous desire, like you talked about, to just learn and to grow and, and things are making sense in a way that they didn't before. What was going on there? What's happening in that moment? Um, so when it came to this project, I wanted to bring together sort of the biblical narratives of John's gospel and, and do the biblical theological work. Uh, I wanted to, uh, engage with someone like Bart, uh, and as well as bringing in someone like Augustine, I can share more about why later, but doing some of that retrieval work because so much of illumination we've draw from kind of the reformers forward. And so I wanted to go back to kind of really the father of the theory of illumination in a lot of ways, uh, Augustine, and bring some of his stuff back. Um, There's obviously the philosophical side of illumination and so much been um, that's been written in that area. And so really, I wanted it to be a uh, interdisciplinary project, especially since systematic theology is supposed to be interdisciplinary, you know, supposed to bring all these things together in this culminating project. Um, and so it's got a little bit of all that. I wanted it to be historical theology. Like I wanted to be able to communicate what was Augustine's thought first in his own context before just, you know, kind of picking and choosing from it, what I wanted, you know, right. Uh, wanted to be faithful to that. Um, but also I, more than even systematic theology, I probably align very closely with the narrative theological approach of, sure. of, kind of when it comes to these big theological doctrines like illumination in regeneration, not just putting together the system, but in a narrative, how does this happen? What's what's mm-hmm. happening in this? And and the Gospel of John really lended itself well to, to some of that work. Yeah, dude, there's so much to go in there. Uh, so so as a systematician, um, just a, a master systematician, not a PhD yeah. or anything. Uh, I, I love it all. I love when, when someone just goes abstract with it, I'm like, dude, that's yeah. fine. I know it's like a, a <laughs> critique that, that the biblical guys always level, but yeah, I did appreciate that that you spent so much time on John and you limited your focus mm. to that. I thought that that probably took a lot of discipline because mm. you see it somewhere else and you're like, okay, here, here, here. But yeah. John's a great example. And I, I think something that, that I learned from uh, your book was, to look at all those examples, like the woman at the well, mm-hmm. um, in the in a similar way that Augustine did, and seeing, oh, this this might be divine illumination going on here. Mm-hmm. John might have picked this story for this reason. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean that uh, it didn't happen or anything like right. that. But it, it's there's different stories, and John's telling a narrative, and and that makes sense that he would pick that. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas maybe the more modern uh, uh, biblical scholars don't do that, right? They don't read the way Augustine did. And maybe for some, I want to talk about that a little bit too, maybe yeah. for maybe rightly here and there. Yeah. Um, but I, I was really encouraged by that. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, Ike, before we get in a little bit deeper, i um just curious, man, how'd you end up, you, you were deconstructing and you went to Duke yeah. Yeah. and then you ended up at, at Ted, man, <laughs> like with, with the evangelicals. How, yeah. Why'd you come back uh, to, to evangelical dumb? Yeah, such a great question. So it really... Uh, it really started with that story I shared of my professor pushing back on my what I thought were kind of these enlightened progressive ideas of moving beyond the ways that the bias of faith would pull us to have to confirm things that if we denied it, it would mean our faith was missing something or that it was just inadequate in every way. Mm-hmm. And so um Honestly, I think the biggest piece of it was to walk into somewhere like Duke that I had tremendous respect for these professors and for their their knowledge. Um, they could speak to me in a way that I think some institutions that aligned with kind of the tradition I came from, um, I, I probably couldn't hear at that time. And that's yeah. not to knock those institutions, but it's to say that when you're in that deconstruction process, there's just certain voices that you don't want to listen to. Yeah. 
that you don't want to hear from. Um, and for good reason and for bad reason, it's, it's both. Um, but to hear a professor that I had tremendous respect for academically and intellectually challenge my ideas forced me to reconsider some things. Hmm. And so in particular, it was the epistemology, the how do we know what we know? And hmm. I had very much bought into kind of the epistemology of I am putting together this for myself and I'm gathering this information for myself. And what Kevin Rowe and others at Duke forced me to say is, no, you're 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 depending on a tradition of knowledge for your understanding, whether you realize it or not, you're depending on a tradition of knowledge. Um, And so the question is not, are you depending on a tradition of knowledge, but which tradition of knowledge are you drawing upon? Are you drawing upon a modern tradition of knowledge that breaks everything down to its most minute piece, the atomization, modern kind of preoccupation with atomizing things? Or is it a tradition that's rooted in something deeper, something more transcendent, more, uh, you know, with more historical grounding to it? And they just really challenged me on that. And they challenged kind of the, I'll tell you one of the, the a great example of this was um, one of the issues was around the doctrine of inerrancy, right? And kind of what do I think of that? And one of the things that my professor said was not to knock the doctrine of inerrancy, but they said even some of the ways that the doctrine of inerrancy is construed is a modern construction in the sense that the authority of Scripture depends on Scripture lining up with our modern notion of what makes it authoritative. Right. Versus Scripture being authoritative because it is the Holy Spirit's illumination of these authors and their inspiration of these authors with divine communication through these authors. Um, and so it's being rooted in a tradition of knowledge versus kind of a modern construction of what makes it authoritative. And so it was just really interesting and helpful to see how thoroughly modern I'd become in my thinking in ways mm. that were really unhelpful. So yeah. anyway, that probably a whole lot. No, of- that's good. But, but, but so then like why she, uh, Van Hooser was your, uh, your main dude you're, right. you're studying under, right? So yeah. why, why, why the who's? Yeah. So I really became interested in a lot of the like post or post liberal post conservative conversations around scripture and theology, and uh, as I read George Lindbeck's stuff on um, the nature of doctrine, and found myself both intrigued but also felt like it was insufficient with mm-hmm. uh, Van Hooser's um, canonical linguistic approach. I felt like it was a much more like theologically rooted way of approaching doctrine than a, just a general linguistic, uh, you know, um, cultural linguistic approach. And so I just realized, man, here's someone who I know is faithful to the tradition, someone who is thoughtful and and engaging in his theological work. Um, but also I think holds to an orthodoxy that isn't just your typical like defensive posture. Yeah. Um, one of the things that Bart says that I love is he says, your best apology is, is a good theology. And mm-hmm. I felt like that's something that Van Hooser was continuing the tradition of, was writing a beautiful theology that communicated the beauty of our tradition without this defensive posture. Yeah. And so when it came to my interest in theology, both from a theological interpretation standpoint, um, as well as uh, just a... A, a rich theological understanding. And, and, and he, and here's the other thing is he did a good job of blending the systematic theology and the narrative theology. And yeah. that was really important to me that someone that understood both the advantages and disadvantages of systematic theology. Uh, I appreciated how he did that. So that was a big piece of it too. Yeah, man, that's huge. I, I love, I love Van Hooser. He's the man. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you picked in this study that you did under him, you picked Augustine and you picked Bart mm-hmm. and I'm like, well, that has Van who's all over it because yeah. like, that's his thing. Uh, both, both of those, those figures. Um, was that something that he helped influence or did you know going in, I'm going to pick Bart and, and Augustine? Yeah. So originally I was focused solely on Bart uh, because Bart had been so helpful for me really in working through my own, deconstruction and reconstruction. Uh, mm. And I don't know if you, if many people have really thought about this, but I, I'm convinced when I read Bart's story that he went through a deconstruction and reconstruction of his mm. own. Uh, you know, he grew up in an evangelical context and then kind of swung pretty far liberal in terms of kind of theology uh, in a way that his father was really disappointed in, you know, yeah. his, his studying at Marburg and some of those guys. 
in some of those schools. And then we see with World War One, all of that just falls apart. And he's like, we've got to start this thing over. So anyway, I was just fascinated with Bart. And uh, in talking with uh, Van Hooser about my dissertation, he felt like there needed to be someone else that was a part of this conversation, someone else that um, either rooted it in some way in the tradition uh, or just knowing the the skepticism about Bart in the evangelical tradition in particular, someone that maybe, you know, was a little more like well-received in the evangelical tradition. So there were, there were a number of reasons that he kind of recommended bringing Augustine in on it. Yeah. Well, that's huge, man. Cause if it was just Bart, I probably wouldn't read it because (laughs) I've got some, I'm, I'm, I love Van Til and um, Van Til hates Bart and yes, they were close on some stuff and somehow they live peacefully in Van Hooser's mind. Yeah. But in mine, they still don't yet. So I was encouraged. And I read the Bart section and I was like, okay, if this dude's writing about Augustine, I should also read about Bart. And, <laughs> and, and I loosened up a little bit. So that was, that was cool go. to an interesting part of the project. Um, yeah. So before get going further, man, we should probably define like what, what is uh, illumination? What are we talking about when we talk about divine illumination? Yeah. 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 So one of the things that I wanted to do in this work was uh, bring out the contribution of the gospel of John to illumination because so much of what's talked about illumination comes from Paul's letters um, a little bit from John's letters, but the, the fact that the gospel of John refers to Christ as the light of the world or the light, which enlightens all men is coming to the world really gets skipped over. It doesn't get talked about a whole lot. And so that was something I wanted to correct a little bit with this. And in doing that, a part of what I wanted to draw out was when we look at the gospel of John and in particular, the prologue where it says, you know, the light came into the world and darkness did not overcome it. Um, The light, which enlightens all men was coming into the world. Really illumination is an aspect of the divine mission in the world. Hmm. It is an aspect of what God wants to accomplish in the world, which is the illumination of his people. And so the doctrine of illumination really is clarifying how does God go about accomplishing this divine mission to illuminate his creation. Uh, When we look at Genesis 1, what we see in the creation of light is really both the literal creation of light, but also a metaphor for the illumination of all of God's creation. uh, Mm -hmm. And in particular, the spiritual illumination that we see with his followers and with, and with those in Christ. And so uh, the way that I define illumination is is that uh, illumination is human participation in the son's knowledge of the father. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason that I talk about that way is a lot of times we think of illumination strictly within the context of reading scripture, that the Holy Spirit illumines my understanding of scripture as I read it. But when I look at the gospel of John, it's so much more broad than that. I mean, it's, it's the light of the world enlightening humanity. Uh, it's, um, and they didn't have, they didn't have the canon at that point when he's writing, right. Or they didn't have all the letters. So he, he's illuminating them in some way that's different than the way we're just, if we're just rigidly saying it's by reading scripture. Yeah, true. Exactly. Exactly. And so, uh, so yeah, so then, you know, I wanted to say that, um, And this comes from Bart to some degree, but also my own kind of reading of scripture, which is knowledge of God is not something that we possess, you know, in the sense of like, I now own this information about God and I can use this at my disposal. We can have facts about God, but I think when we think about illumination in the ways that scripture talks about illumination, it's more than just the intellectual information. It's a Mm -hmm. way of life. It's a way of being Uh, that is more than just something I can possess. It's something I participate in. And so that's what I'm drawing out throughout this is how we, what it means that we participate in the son's knowledge of the father. Yeah, man, I really like that. And, and like I said, I work with athletes in action. So we always have to use like LeBron when we talk about this stuff. So it's like, <laughs> you, can, you can know facts about LeBron. If someone says, hey, do you know LeBron? And you think yeah. of it that way, you're like, yeah, I know LeBron. He, he played basketball here, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but if you're like, hey, do you know LeBron? And they mean like, do you know him personally? It's like, no, I have no idea. He doesn't know me. Yeah. We don't. But that would be more of a way of life if, if we were friends and I That's knew right. him and I'm living with him in relationship. And I always, I always think that's a a decent example of that's more of like the biblical knowledge. Yeah. Um, There's both, right. You can't have the, the interpersonal without knowing facts, I think Mm -hmm. probably, but, but it's much, much more. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so you also, you also talk a lot about uh, economy and um, 
I'm sure Van Hooser's in there as well because he's always <laughs> talking about economy. Um, but so you you mentioned that uh, illumination is uh, trinitarian. Yeah. Um, can can you kind of flesh out like how, how is that trinitarian? Yeah, great question. So um, part of it goes back to looking at the Gospel of John and seeing that in the Gospel of John, the agent of illumination is not the Holy Spirit. Yeah. It's the light of the world. It's the Logos. And so then you look at first John where it talks about God is light and there's no darkness in him at all. We have all of the persons of the Godhead being referred to as agents involved in this work of illumination. And so for me, then it was simply trying to capture the biblical witness to what illumination is and seeing that it's more than just a pneumatological reality. It's a Trinitarian reality, reality. Um, Going beyond that, then, with illumination, originally, uh, the the title of my dissertation was Conceiving Knowledge. Mm -hmm. And the reason it was called that was because I wanted to make the case that illumination is what happens at the intersection of regeneration and revelation. So that conception, conceiving, and then knowledge, revelation, that when God reveals himself to us in revelation, and we are made able to receive that, in regeneration, what happens is illumination. Hmm. And so the agents involved in that, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they're involved in different ways. Uh, and so one of the things that Bart talks about with revelation is you've got, um, uh, there is um, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit broken down is um, uh, the, gosh, I'm trying to think how it goes. Um, um Revelation, um, revealing and revealedness. So they're kind of the three persons of the Trinity playing different parts. And so I kind of wanted to say something similar where you've got light, the father, Mm -hmm. you've got enlightening the Holy Spirit, the the son, you know, coming into the world, enlightening all men. And then sort of this enlightenedness, that's the effect of the illumination that is happening. And so they're all working together in this action of illumination in their own ways. And so that was something I spent a lot of time kind of fleshing out in the economy was how they all are one and yet have their different parts in that work. Yeah. I think that's awesome because not only is it important to be good Trinitarians in our theology, but it's, it's how the Bible describes it. You know, yeah. so it's, it's, yeah. it's awesome. And that's why we should be good Trinitarians because it's biblical. Yeah. Um, but, but we, we do that with salvation and we ought to do that with illumination as well. So uh, the, the interesting, another interesting thing that um, came up, came up um, when I was reading was something you already mentioned was um, Christ is the one, not the Holy spirit doing like yeah. doing the illumination. And I still wrestle with that because yeah, obviously that's right from John one, but, uh, again, man, I grew up in the evangelical free church and the Holy Spirit's work was helping us read the Bible, but yeah. not the way that Bart was talking about it. Right. We're not listening <laughs> for uh, we're listening to the word of God. Right. That's so right. it's not that either. Yeah. Um, but then I'm just still kind of wrestling with like, I guess if you have a strong sense of economy and yeah. the, you know, operations at extra um, yeah. being unified, then it's not that big of a problem, but it's like the Holy Spirit's giving us the son's knowledge of the father. Does that sound right? Yeah. 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 So John in his gospel over and over again, you hear Jesus say things like he who knows me knows the father or he who has seen me has seen the father. Kind of this idea that you are participating in my knowledge of the father. And so what the Holy Spirit enables us to do is participate in that. It's not something we do in our own power. It's something we do in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, And so in that sense, we tend to think of knowledge, like I said, as something that we possess and we own. But knowledge of God is unique in that it's something that we have only insofar as he enables us to participate in it. Yeah. And so the Holy Spirit is what enables us to do that. Um, And so it's that kind of um, the, the language of participation is huge. I mean, it's it's theologically in a fad right now, right? We're everybody totally talking about you know, <laughs> yeah. participation. Yeah. Um, but really it's also for Bart, for Calvin in a lot of ways, it's what encompasses the Christian life is this mm-hmm. idea that we are in Christ. I mean, gr- drawing obviously on Paul as well. Um, but that image, this is illumination is trying to clarify what's the intellectual part of that. What's the, the knowledge piece of our participation in that relationship? Yeah. Yeah. That's man. That's really helpful. Um, 
when when we say when we say that God is light, mm-hmm. um, well, actually, let me go with the Holy Spirit a- aspect for a second. So, um, you talk about regeneration and, and communication. Um, this it gets it gets real tricky real quick with, <laughs> when you start talking about regeneration. Like, does regeneration yeah. precede faith? Um, does the Holy Spirit make it so that? Uh, I guess I'm thinking like prevenient grace. If you're an mm-hmm. Arminian, right? So, like, mm-hmm. he he made it so that everyone can receive, but then you have this free choice. Um, does your project? pick out a certain type of regeneration or just saying whatever, whatever we're saying regeneration is that's needed in order um, to have illumination blossom. Yeah. So that was, I don't know if you're getting, if this is what you're getting at, but some of it's around that question of the order of salvation sure. or salutis kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I kind of, I don't know that I'd spell this out in the book as much, but I kind of took issue with the order of salutis in the sense that when we look at the biblical uh, depiction of that, there's a lot of acrobatics that has to be done to make them all fit together. Mm. neatly. Um, and um, one of the books written on this was uh, the cross and salvation by Demarest. Mm-hmm. And he kind of lays out all the different ordo salutis. And I just could not make them all work together. Like in a way that like, when he, you know, the scriptures that he went to. And so when I looked at the narratives of these encounters with Christ, I also didn't feel like here's the ABCD step of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what I focused more on rather than laying out kind of the order of salvation was focusing on um, how do these pieces work together for the theological end of illumination for yeah. the, how do that we arrive at illumination? What is happening in those, in those? Um, and some of it's because I felt like different narratives presented this a little bit differently. Um, so for example, Nicodemus just doesn't get what Jesus is talking about. Right. Just like, what are you talking about? Go back in the mother's womb. What are you talking about? Like being born of water and spirit. What, what is this? Right. Um, but Nicodemus continues to show up in John's gospel. John 7, he shows up and he's like defending Jesus. And he's like, you can't crucify this man without a trial, you know, whatever. And then at the end, we see him take Jesus's body and he's a part of burying his body. And so there's this question of like, okay, does Nicodemus come to Christ? Does he make this decision to become a follower of Jesus? And we're never given this sense of, okay, where in there was he re- regenerated? Right? Mm. <laughs> where in there did illumination take place? Like. Yeah. And so in that sense, it's a very different experience than the man born blind who Jesus heals him and it's instantaneous, right? It's like, I don't know. All I know is I was blind and now I see Or The woman at the well who's like, man, I just met this man who's told me everything about me, um, makes this profession of faith. And so for me, it wasn't as much about how do I clarify the steps of this as much as understanding what are all the parts that these are playing? Regeneration, faith, revelation, and kind of bringing that together the best that I could. Um, because honestly, a lot of this, I think, happens simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, there, that These things are happening. And so one of the things I talk about is you can make um, a logical distinction with some of, between some of these, but not a sure. chronological distinction. Yeah. Right. So you could say that that chronologically these are all happening at the same time, but logically regeneration has to happen before faith can take place before, you know, that kind of thing. And so I, I kind of touch on that a little bit without being overly systematic with it, I think. Yeah. Well, and I like that as well, because um, an Arminian could read this, a Calvinist could read this and, and um, it could be fruitful for them. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering just personally, man, this didn't, I don't think this came up in the book uh, either, but <laughs> is illumination in your mind uh, and from your study, is it more of a passive act or is there an active role that the, individual that the 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 creature plays in participating in um illumination illumination yeah absolutely so one of the things that i i touch on that's related to that is that idea of what is our human role in this Mm -hmm. illumination and there's two things that i'll say the first one is i found and this is something that van hooser talks a lot about is what's the idea of being the subject in an action you know, and he talks about middle, um, middle tense kind of verbs. So uh, uh, basically you can talk about someone being a subject in the sense that I'm the one that's performing this action. Mm -hmm. So Ike reads the book, right? I'm the one that's performing the action. Another way of thinking about being the subject in a, in a sentence when it comes to middle voice is you're the location where the event is taking place or where Mm -hmm. the action is taking place. 
And so I'm the subject of illumination in that it's I'm the location where the illumination is taking place. Hmm. Um, and so obviously that can't happen without me. I'm involved in that. It's happening in me. Um, but I'm not the one that's making my illumination happen. God is still the active agent in that work. I'm the location where that is taking place. So that, first of all, was super helpful. Um, the other thing is that I'll, that's really helpful um, is Bart talks a lot about how do we talk about illumination in a way that doesn't destroy the uh, the integrity of the human being, right? Yeah. Like in a way that doesn't just make the human a, a robot of God's action. Yeah. Uh, and so he has a way of talking about that relationship in which God is the active agent, but we are still involved in that in a, in a unique way. And so that would be something I would encourage people to go and read. I think to dig into it over here, we get yeah. really technical really fast, but yeah, it's, it's tough. There's certain things you just are tough to do in a podcast that, yeah. that different, um, the participation and the, the agency stuff, I think, is actually really helpful uh, in Van Hooser's Remythologizing Theology and, yep. and the uh, the uh, authorial analogy that he develops there, um, which which I took up in my master's thesis. But it's a really interesting way to say, hey, look, yes, like a, like a, um, a character has this role to play within the story, but also the author is the one writing it. And so you mm-hmm. want to preserve both the creator-creature distinction as well as uh, sovereignty and, and free freedom. Yeah. Um, which is just fantastic, man. He, again, he's the man. Um, yeah. <laughs> and and your, your work is really, it's, I love talking with his um, students, especially his PhD students, because you guys, there's so much Van Hooser uh, yeah. Yeah, in your work, but it's like moving it the ball forward. That's right. And so that's why I, I really love um, this one. I wanted to talk a little bit more about uh, like the ethical component of illumination. Cause I thought it was so helpful for me. Yeah. Um, I, uh, most people, I don't know. If you're thinking about divine illumination as a theologian, you're probably thinking cognition yeah. and knowledge. And even I, like, I know I'm not supposed to do that and I still do it. <laughs> yeah. this, the ethical component is something that's really helpful for me um, in, in pushing back on that. Can you lay yeah. out like what you mean by uh, when, when you talk about that? Yeah. So the, again, to go back to the gospel of John, one of the primary metaphors that the gospel of John uses to speak about, following Jesus is to walk in the light Mm -hmm. uh, that we walk in the light. And, and I just found that to be really helpful for saying that illumination is not just what we know, but it's lived knowledge. It's living out the knowledge that we have received in illumination. And so it's a lumen way of life, uh, so to speak. Um, One of the things that Bart says is we tend in our in our modern context to divorce faith and obedience as if they're two different things. Mm -hmm. Um, But for John, those are not two separate things. Um, Faith and obedience go together that that we have to have a certain amount of faith in order to obey. But do we really, you know, believe if we're not willing to obey? Have we really come to understand what illumination we've received? Um, And so it's ethical. Illumination is ethical in the sense that it's. It's a way of life that reflects that we've received this illumination from God, uh, that, that God has illumined our way. And so our participation in the light is us living out this illumined way of being. So that's the ethical piece of it in particular. Yeah, man, I love that so much because you are accountable for, for the knowledge that you have. And yeah. look like you should act on what you say you believe. You you ought yeah. to do that. If, and um, you, there's an ethical component. There's like a practical component. If you say like, yeah, I believe parachutes will keep me safe. And you jump out of a plane without a parachute. Like, I don't think you right. actually believe that you could say that. But I don't think um, and I, I thought that was um, really, really helpful for thinking through it's, it's a way of life. And there's, there's kind of another research. There's a ton of resurgences going on right now in Christian, but yeah. there's another one of, of, of looking at Christ uh, as a philosopher, Jesus, the great philosopher. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people are doing this. I really like that. But what they're getting at is the ancient sense of philosophy and you have a school and you have followers and mm-hmm. Christ is a philosopher in that sense. That he's giving a way of life and his followers follow him. Like you should be able to recognize, Oh, that's a Christ follower. Just like you'd be able to recognize that's a, a Plato follower. Yeah. And uh, I think that this, this is a really important aspect of that and saying like, if you've been illumined, your life should show it. It's not earning yeah. salvation or anything, but like you should act on the knowledge which you've been given, if you've really been given that knowledge mm-hmm. to go along with what you said about someone, you know, praying a special prayer and then yeah. their life doesn't change at all. Yeah. Another piece with that too, uh, beyond just the cognitive and the intellectual is the, uh, 
the volitional or kind of the, how does illumination intersect with our will and our passions? Mm -hmm. And so much, like you said, when we think about illumination and light, we think of the mind and in terms of intellect. Um, But one of the things that we see with, with Nicodemus in particular is it wasn't just a matter of understanding. There was also some level of whether we want to understand do we want to understand this? I mean, there was a lot at stake in Nicodemus choosing to follow Jesus. There was a lot that that was going to cost him in that moment. Um, (laughs) This is kind of a random example. I don't know if you've watched the chosen at all. The the TV series about Jesus and his disciples. No, no. Um, But in the first, the first season of this uh, Nicodemus plays a major role in it. Hmm. And a major part of this is the tension that Nicodemus lives in between knowing that there's something about this guy, Jesus, that's compelling, that is there's something true to it. But on the other hand, knowing what it's going to cost him and and kind of the desire to follow and that internal struggle. Uh, I think about my own journey, going back to kind of the deconstruction stuff. uh, You know, there were there when we say we leave the faith for intellectual reasons, and that's true at times, but there's always more than that. There's there's Mm -hmm. more going on than that. And I say that because even for myself, when I got satisfying answers to my questions, if they weren't the answers I wanted, I just didn't want to believe it. Yeah. And so there's there's that will piece involved in there. It's not purely like we're not this purely non-emotional like human beings. Like there's a will and a desire piece that's caught up in it, too. And, and illumination speaks to that as well. Yeah, man, that's huge. And, and you talked about in the book, you talked about uh, having the disposition to receive illumination. Mm, and and it, yeah. there's two at least two qualities, humility, humility and yeah. love. Yeah. And um, which draws up another question, like is illumination um is it a singular event? Is it an ongoing mm. uh, event? Um, is there one big one and then uh, mm. smaller ones or smaller <laughs> continuation? What, what, what do you make of that? It's good. Yeah. I, you know, so I talked in there about uh, kind of this initial illumination where Christ reveals himself. For many of us, that would be the moment we decide to follow Christ. It's the aha moment. It, it makes sense. Um, and then a progressive illumination. So kind of this ongoing work of the Holy Spirit and inviting us into the Son's knowledge of the Father and, and growing in that knowledge and that participation. Um, but one of the things that's interesting is with Nicodemus, we don't see the aha moment necessarily. Yeah. You know, there seems to be some work that's happening, some growing in his understanding. Uh, and so it seems more progressive uh, without necessarily this aha moment that we see, at least mm-hmm. with the disciples. You know, some of them have a moment of clarity of like, oh, this is the Messiah. But even for them, there's moments where it's clear they don't fully understand what's going yeah. on. Right. <laughs> They're not fully clear what's happening. And one of my favorite Uh, verses in John is in John chapter one, where uh, Jesus has been resurrected. He comes out to the shore. The disciples see him. They come in and Jesus has made breakfast for him. And John says, none dared ask who he was because they knew who he was. Mm. And you're kind of like, that's a strange thing to say. Like, why would you include that? And it seems to be, no, they've, there's something about the resurrection that has just clarified this in their mind that before they might have said, who is this? You know, who is this really? And so it seems like even for the disciples, there's this journey of progressive illumination that's taking place. Okay. Man, that's awesome. Um, when I So when I think of Augustine, you know, he's, he's changed a lot um, in, his, in his own uh, progress, and he went back and made revisions and stuff. But I, I think of like he – he would do this stuff with like on the teacher where he was, it, it seemed like God had to teach you everything. Mm-hmm. Um, when it, I, I found uh, his notion of illumination so interesting. And you had a really great conversation about uh, uh, Platonists and, and uh, Aristotelians. And I thought that was, fa- that's worth it for the book alone. That was so awesome. interesting. And, and, and you mentioned Ronald Nash. He's, I, I love me some Nash. So I got, yeah, yeah. I got the older one here too. The light of the mind and the word nice. of God and the mind of man. It's, I love some Nash. Yeah. Um, but I, Nash following Gordon Clark, heavy rationalists. Um, yeah. I, so I thought Augustine's illumination is, is cognitive. Mm-hmm. Um, and then thinking about Augustine on, uh, on the teacher and stuff, it seemed kind of cognitive too. 
was Augustine's theory uh, richer than that? Like, is mm. was he more emphasize, emphasizing the the intellectual? Can you kind of characterize uh, Augustine's uh, illumination for us? Yeah, that's good. I, I mean, I would definitely say Augustine falls more on that side of things okay. in terms of kind of the focus is more on the cognitive or the intellectual. Uh, Bart, in some ways, is where I bring in the more holistic view of illumination for Bart illumination was not just kind of the intellectual transformation, but it was really God seizing the whole person mm. uh, in illumination. And so uh, Augustine at times dipped into more than just the cognitive, but for the most part, it definitely remained in that realm of, of intellect and understanding. Okay. Yeah. So, um, and, and I ask because I wonder about, sometimes I have ideas and they're, they're pretty good. Yeah, and I'm like, that doesn't seem like mine. It seems like like certain things are just in my head and I don't I really have an explanation for it. Maybe if you had a full psychology of me, you could find where it came in. But yeah. I wonder, does that fit? Because it seems like uh, we're, we're talking about the economy of illumination and it seems like it's focusing on Christ. And if you ask Bart, uh, for sure, um, does does God actively illumine us in other ways, like giving us ideas and helping mm-hmm. us with, with other things? Or is it strictly let's limit illumination to um, salvific and and the economy of salvation. Yeah. So one of the things that's helpful here and kind of going outside of Bart and Augustine for a moment, um, you know, Calvin talked a lot about creation as the theater of God's glory Mm -hmm. and kind of this idea that glory also has this light element to it. This, this, this illuminating element to it that when we see and understand his glory, something changes in us. Mm. And so I think it's more than just something that happens as we read scripture. I think there's other ways that it takes place. Um, Does that mean that it's natural theology is illuminating? I don't know that I would go that far to say that that's the case. Um, But I would say that it's more than just God making himself known to us as we read scripture. I think God does that in prayer. God reveals himself to us in prayer. Um, God reveals that himself to us through the community of God's people, um, that that in community as God's body in the world, we experience God and, and encounter him in that way. We do that through worship. Um, so I think there's more than just, you know, the reading of scripture that illumines our understanding. God encounters us in other ways as well. Okay. Yeah, that's really helpful. I'm not going to attribute uh, my thoughts to God's or anything like that, but sure, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, just, just so we're all clear here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, got a direct line, man. Right, right. Um, okay, so, so uh, you, what's what's interesting about this is not just retrieval, it's not just historical, but it's it's also constructive. You you um, do some constructive work at the end. And you also consider uh, the book of John. You, you look at uh, Augustine's um, commentary. You look at Bart's commentary on John. And then you do some of your own. Are there places where you're like, uh, Augustine and Bart got this wrong or not quite? Or um, yeah. do, you have, do you have any d- disagreements with them? Or is it kind of a, a, a straight line through? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, the main areas that I really found disagreement with them were more when it came to how we talked about participation in Christ, mm. uh, that element of the illumination piece. And so for Augustine in particular, participation in Christ was very much tied to the sacraments, to the taking of uh, the Eucharist. And in my understanding of, of sacramental theology, I think to say that our illumination is dependent upon that physical act of taking the Eucharist felt like um, a bit disconnected from scripture's witness. I mean, we do have Jesus talking about, you know, eating his flesh and drinking his blood, but I think that's more than just the, you know, literal. (laughs) Yeah. I think there's more than that going on. Um, I think that has more to do with kind of the John 15 image of the vine and the branches that were, that participation is our um, experiencing life that we draw from the vine. Uh, and so that was one of the areas where I disagreed with Augustine was kind of on that realm of things. Augustine also, when it came to participation, had a very, um, how would I describe this? Um, it was, was, honestly, it was a little too mechanical for me in the sense of, you know, taking the cup and bread and this happening and this also this permanence kind of thing versus participation being something that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. So there's, there's a little bit there that I disagreed with him mm-hmm. um, with Bart. And this is no surprise, <laughs> um, but where I would disagree with Bart was kind of on his 
universalizing of our participation in Christ. Like there's for Bart, there's very much the sense that if Christ's work um, was objectively making humanity right with Christ, that means it's true for everyone. Right. Uh, and therefore salvation is universal for everyone. Um, but for me, I, I kind of took that as what Bart didn't want to do was separate the objective accomplishment of salvation in Christ from the subjective accomplishment of salvation in Christ. Meaning uh, when we think of salvation, there's the objective work that happened in Christ on the cross in the resurrection. And then there's the subjective application of yeah. that right to the individual. And, and for the, the work of Christ to be complete, both of those have to be accomplished fully. Yeah. And so Bart didn't want to separate those and didn't want to allow those to be different. Um, but my question in return to Bart was, if the, the subjective work of Christ has to be complete for all people in order for the work of Christ to be complete, then why do we have people that in, don't have the transformative encounter with Christ? Especially if it's holistic. If illumination is holistic like that, they're, yeah. not, they don't, they're not acting like it. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. And so if they have to go together, that means the objective work of Christ wasn't complete. Uh, and do we want to say that? Do we want to draw that conclusion? And so that's one of the areas where I separated ways with Bart was to say, I think we can say that the work of Christ was complete in its objective sense, but in its subjective application and reception, we still have, you know, the ability due to, you know, the darkness, so to speak, in this language of illumination to reject that. Yeah. Oh man, that's good. That's really good. Um, so, so what's, what's next for, uh, what's next for illumination? Like someone picks up your work. What yeah. are some other areas um, people can, can grab it and, and take the ball forward? I definitely think that there is a place for looking outside the gospel of John mm -hmm. uh, to, to see, does this, this view, this doctrine that I've constructed bear out when we look at the whole new Testament, I touched on a few things um, just in, in a kind of an excursus, but it was beyond the scope of this work to engage yeah. the whole new Testament or old Testament. Um, and so there's some question of, you know, would this bear out throughout the new Testament? I think that that would be a great, a great direction to take it. I think it would be also to bring, one of the things that would be interesting would be to bring it in conversation with other theologians on this work, whether that's someone like Calvin, would this theory of illumination connect with him and line up with his work? Um, uh, so that would be an area. I think another area is really kind of the question that you asked of if, uh, Christ is still an agent of illumination. How does that happen? What does that look like? Um, and how do we do that without saying, okay, where is the distinction between the persons of the spirit and the person of, of Christ? Um, yeah. So I think those are some areas for, for bearing that out. Okay. Yeah, that's huge. I have been trying to not to, to stay in John. Um, it's, it's so tempting because I want to do systematic stuff too. And yeah, I, yeah. I, think, I think of like Paul, I think of Romans one and, and, um, what I see is self-deception, right? Um, uh, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Um, I see that as a humanity thing, um, not just just like individually we do that, not just a, a period of time. And maybe I'm wrong in that interpretation. But what um, do you have you given thought to like self-deception and uh, suppression of the truth as it relates to divine illumination and, and regeneration? Yeah, one of the things that I loved about Augustine's work was his talk about the man born blind who uh, the light is present to him, but he's blind to the light. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know? And so Jesus has to heal him in order for him to see the light. And uh, so that image of the light can be present to us, but we can be blind to the light uh, being able to say, this is not prohibited because the light's not shining. It's prohibited because of our own blindness due to our sin. That's, mm -hmm. that's blocking our ability to see the light clearly. Um, and so there's definitely some of that element. And that's where kind of the preparation for illumination part in Augustine came from was, you know, washing the eyes. He talks about this man having to go and wash the mud. And the mud was kind of the, the preparation for illumination um, and how we have to do that in ourselves when that's kind of the humility and the love piece, uh, that disposition for illumination. Yeah, man, I, I love that so much because um, when I'm working with students and we're, I, I love reading John with them, um, but when, when people talk about the mud in the eyes and stuff like that, uh, they're like, why, huh? Like he could have just snapped his fingers and stuff. But yeah. it's like, he, no, he's showing you your spiritual condition. It's yeah. like he's, he's a 
teacher. He's not just a this healer who has to heal everyone. He's trying to teach for he heals for purposes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I thought that was so huge to to see like, oh dude, I had mud on my eyes forever. <laughs> um and he had to instruct me too. So I don't know. I don't want to read too much into it and try to, you know, stack the deck the deck for the Calvinist side. Um yeah, yeah. But because there was still active participation. He had to go and actually mm-hmm. act on it and stuff. And yep. yeah. 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 And that was a big question that I had to work through was kind of that question of election, sovereignty yeah. of God kind of stuff. And I think where I came out on this in a lot of ways is I would still say God is God's the primary actor. He's the is the uh, it, it depends on his primary action. But the difference would be uh, we tend to think of God's will and our will operating on the same plane versus God's will being what underwrites and enables our action. Yeah. And that being much more of a, a helpful way of seeing this encounter with the man born blind, Jesus could have put the mud on his eyes. And this man been like, this is dumb. I'm going, it's like, this is not going to work. I'm out, you know? Um, and so there was a level of trust that he had to exercise mm-hmm. in order to follow through on that action. And so, yeah, I mean, it's a huge question though. That's part of it. Yeah. I, um, I love that that language. Even talking about different levels, like authorial analogy, jumps right back in there. I love. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah, exactly. So good, and and that's that really is the fun of of systematics. Is like yeah. I can't just develop this in secret or just mm-hmm. in a little closed door, and that like it's going to have to bleed out. And what do I think about uh, regeneration and election? It's all going to come through. And yes, we can be friends and we can um, disagree, uh, but at the end of the day, like I still have to try and make sense of this. Yeah, even even saying, look, I'm not going to know everything and there's mystery and I'm finite and I'm sinful and all that. But I, that's why I love, I love systematics. And uh, I love the way you guys are doing that. It seems like a lot of Van Hoosers guys are doing a great job of planting in the, in the, in the word itself and, and doing the systematic work too. Yeah. So one of Van Hoosers corrections for me was uh, coming out of Duke with people like Stanley Harawas that talk a lot about narrative theology over systematic theology. Um, you know, Van Hooser's corrective to me was narrative is important, but Luke also talks about, you know, giving an orderly account and mm. and how important that was and that our God is a God of order. And so finding a way to find the balance and the tension that, like you said, you can't just go and construct a systematic theology that you can validate because it's coherent with itself. You're still accountable to scripture. Yeah. And so having to ask the question, okay, this is all neat and tidy, but is it flexible enough to also reflect the narratives of scripture? You know, Um, is it too robotic? Is it too rigid to be able to reflect and to be true to the the narratives we have in scripture? And so finding that balance is something that I think Van Hooser does a good job of challenging his students to to maintain. Yeah. (laughs) No, I think that's great. And that it sounds like so I, I used to read a lot more Gordon Clark and his uh take on on John probably John one, it's the Johannian Logos. He yeah. he wants to he wants to translate that as logic. And mm. yeah, dude, he's a really sharp guy and it's consistent like internally, yeah. but then when you read it with scripture, like, I don't know, man. DA <laughs> Carson and you're like, Well, there might be a reason that he chose word and the, the Hebrew Devar and, and all that stuff. Yeah. Um so yeah, I, I really appreciate that, that you do have to match it up with scripture. That's a really good word. Yeah. Um, well, Ike, man, this has been super fun. Thanks. Thanks Thank so much for, for coming on. If somebody wanted to find more of your work or, or hear more from you, like where, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, the biggest couple of places are, I've got a website, IkeMiller.com that I kind of collect a lot of different things that I'm working on and that's available there. Uh, really active on Twitter. That's probably my favorite place to hang out and talk. And so, uh, at Ike F. Miller is my handle. Um, and then I've written for like Credo magazine online. Uh, I've written for CT some. And so there, there's some different things out there and written on different things. Uh, there's theological stuff out there, but I've also been writing more recently around issues of trauma um, just okay. and personal trauma and trauma in our childhoods and how that plays out in our adulthoods. And so uh, just lots of different things out there. So feel free to check all that out. That's awesome, dude. You're right on like the, the uh, you're following the wave here of like trauma is another big one where it's like, this, it is, is, this is great. I'm excited to hear uh, more from you there. How yeah. about, like, are, are you, um, you're pastoring, aren't you? Yeah. 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 Where can people, uh, sometimes people will listen to this and then go check out my guests, uh, churches and stuff. So be cool telling. Is that, is that all right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So uh, we planted, my wife and I planted Bright City Church here in Durham, North Carolina, about three years ago. Uh, something I never envisioned doing, but mm-hmm. it was one of those kind of things where God grabbed us and said, this is what I want you to do. And so uh, lead the church here and brightcitychurch.com is our website. Check out kind of what we're doing, what we're about um, podcasts, all that stuff is there. And, uh, yeah, so it's an exciting time to be a church planter given, you know, we've spent half our life now in a pandemic. So (laughs) (laughs) yeah, yeah, dang, that's crazy. Well, Austin, check, check out that church. Uh, again, the book that we've been talking about is seeing by the light illumination and Augustine and Bart's reading of John and that's Ike Miller. Um, it's, it's all, it's all over the place in that, like there's, you'll be spiritually edified, which is really Mm. cool, but you'll be intellectually, uh, challenged as well when you go over, uh, like Augustine's theory and that there's four uh, Nash gives four different takes mm-hmm. on it. And then another person who I, I wasn't familiar with gives another different four. And yeah. it's awesome. And it's a really good work. Um, we need more conversation on illumination. I think this is a yeah. great uh, head start. Um, Ike, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Yeah. Parker, thanks so much for inviting me. So enjoyed this conversation. Love to do awesome. it again. Well, well- 